Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 42, New Great Bulgaria. I do hope you've been enjoying our tour of the tapestry of dysfunctional nations created by Versailles, but if you're tired of all the ping-ponging between countries, buck up, because we've reached our penultimate nation in our coverage of Central Europe, Bulgaria. At the outset, they shared a lot in common with the Serbs, Romanians, and Greeks during their modern history. They also were a conquest of the Ottoman Empire, and as the Turkic grip started to slip, they made a bid for independence. Unlike the successful revolutions of their counterparts, their rising in April 1876 was a disaster, and the Turks easily put it down. The Turks, though, were a little too enthusiastic in doing so, and tens of thousands of Bulgarians were massacred. This opened the door to foreign intervention, as every great power was appalled by the bloodshed, and the Russians saw a golden opportunity to cave in their favorite punching bag. The powers demanded an autonomous Bulgaria, but the Ottoman government refused. The Russians took that as their cue and declared war in April 1877, starting that Russo-Turkish War of 77-78 that I brought up in the Romanian and Yugoslav episodes. It's not a very well-known conflict, but it really broke 400 years of Turkish dominance in the southern Balkans. Anyway, the Russians creamed the Turks and forced Bulgarian independence. Initially, the Russians assigned Bulgaria all its modern territories as well as northern Macedonia, parts of eastern Albania, and a chunk of northern Greece. The other great powers, though, looked at each other nervously and asked if it was a good idea to have such an obviously predominant power in the southern Balkans, especially since it was assumed the new nation would be a Russian client. The result was an agreement that held Bulgaria at first to only its modern northern half, which was going to be a source of much consternation in Bulgaria. The nationalists among them had not given up the dream of a much larger state, and they were willing to fight for that land, and in due course, they absolutely would. In the meantime, northern Bulgaria was organized into a principality under one Alexander I. He was another imported German noble, although he was also an in-law of the Russian Tsar and an officer in the Russian army, and so was seen as sufficiently close to them to be trusted. Alexander, though, wanted to pursue an independent course, which was something that was going to prove rather tricky, as Russian officers dominated the Bulgarian army and defense ministry, ostensibly as advisors, but obviously as a means to control the new state. And worse, many liberal politicians actively worked with those officers in their attempts to outmaneuver their own king politically. His German background didn't endear him to many of his own subjects. Some also thought that direct rule by the Russian Tsar to be more appropriate, him being the champion of Slavs in general. However, a moment of truth arrived in September 1885, when a successful uprising in southern Bulgaria took over from the Turks and appealed to him to come and unite the two parts of the country. Alexander had two choices, either back down and destroy his own credibility at home, or go in and risk the wrath of the great powers who had specifically set his boundaries to prevent just such a unification. He chose to go in, prompting Russia to withdraw their officers, which, good news, meant that the Bulgarians had control of their army. But the bad news was that it was an army with no leadership. Still, it mostly worked out. The Turks weren't in a position to resist the move, and a headless army was better than no army. Great powers looked around and asked themselves if it was worth making a scene over southern Bulgaria, 
and everybody except Russia decided, no, it really wasn't. Russia, for its part, was terribly embarrassed that its supposed client had broken away scarcely seven years after achieving independence. Serbia also took note and decided in October 1885 to attack Bulgaria. This was a disastrous attempt by the Serbs to provoke a general war in Central Europe to try and incorporate Bulgaria. They picked a really bad time, as the Bulgarians were really fired up and still ready for a fight. Even with their leadership difficulties, the Bulgarian army fought tooth and nail, and the Serbs were crushed, with only the intervention of Austria-Hungary on their behalf saving them. Alexander, though, did not have much time to enjoy the victory, as the military forced him out the next year in August 1886 with Russian backing. He was replaced by another German noble, Ferdinand I, but the real power for the time being was the Prime Minister, Stefan Stambulov. Stambulov looked around at a still young nation going through financial difficulties due to war, and decided that an iron hand was required. He assumed powers of decree and instituted authoritarian governance. The police forces were enhanced, and political opposition was not tolerated. Which, all in all, may have been understandable, as the Bulgarian capital of Sofia was a hotbed of plots, mostly coming from Russia and ethnic Bulgarians in northern Macedonia. It was the Macedonian issue that was going to get Sambulov into trouble. He was himself a nationalist and believed Bulgaria should incorporate the area, which was heavily inhabited by ethnic Bulgarians. Uh, there was a little problem, though. The army was in no shape to take the Turks on solo by that time, and nobody really cared much for Bulgaria at this point, so they didn't have allies. This was due to the odd choice of installing Ferdinand as prince. Uh, he wasn't very well respected among the European autocrats and was seen as a puppet for Stambulo, who was a lowborn and hence despised by those same autocrats. Russia especially hated Ferdinand, as he was yet another Bulgarian prince who resisted their efforts at controlling the nation. Bulgaria's only working partner at this time was, ironically, the Ottoman Empire, and their prized foreign alliance was for the Bulgarians to knock it off with their efforts to stir up trouble in Macedonia. This proved to be a deal-breaker for the army, as a third of its officer corps hailed for Macedonia, and they were absolutely against even a tactical delay in incorporating the territory. Stambulov launched his secret police to monitor for any plots against him, resulting in the killings of many of his enemies, but still, the situation spiraled out of his control. Over in the Ottoman Empire, a group known as the VMRO, the Internal Macedonian Revolutionary Organization in English, was set up by Bulgarian nationalists in 1893 with the aim of detaching not just modern northern Macedonia from the empire, but the southern part that is currently part of Greece as well. Some but certainly not all Bulgarian leaders sought to use them to advance their own territorial dreams and so established ties to them. The VMRO was eventually separated into two broad components, with one group operating Bulgaria, organizing Macedonians there for raids and other covert operations, while also pressing the Bulgarian authorities for support. The other part would operate externally of Bulgaria on the Turkish side of the border. I'm going to be upfront. The group went through a lot of acronym names, but I'm settling on VMRO as a catch-all. They were your typical revolutionary-slash-freedom-fighter-slash-terrorist group and went through a lot of internal turmoil, and who was in charge of what portion of the group when isn't something I'm going to dwell on too hard. But these were some hard guys who were not afraid to kill whoever crossed them. K. 
Case in point, they started assassinating Stambulov's allies in the various ministries, which prompted Ferdinand to press him into retirement in 1894 just to calm things down. The retirement wasn't the end of the vendettas, though, and Stambulov was killed by a mob of Macedonians the next year. It was a grisly death, as he bled out from having his hands torn from his arms. Just let that image linger in your mind for a moment. Anyway, Stambulov's fall and death highlighted just how far the VMRO's influence had grown, and how bold they had gotten. There were hundreds of thousands of Bulgarians living in the country that were refugees from Macedonia, and the VMRO co-opted them to lend support to the cause of further expanding Bulgaria. And when I say co-opted, I mean those refugees were coerced into supporting the organization with the open threat of violence. They were shaken down for funds with which to run the group, and recruits with which to organize raiding parties into Ottoman-controlled Macedonia. With the authorities at a loss as to how to stop them, this threat of violence expanded to the government itself. Anyone who crossed the organization made themselves targets of assault or assassination, and with the army in favor of seizing Macedonia by force, uh, they really weren't going to be the guys to suppress the organization. Their operations just across the border were even more spectacular. Operating as a full-blown resistance movement within the Ottoman borders, the VMRO set up cells scattered across the Slavic villages of Macedonia's countryside, which initially focused on picking off the more hated Ottoman officials in the region as a means to undermine their rule. The guerrilla units would often enter small villages, announce their presence to the local Slavic leadership, usually the clergy, and ascertain if the locals were willing to support the organization. If they said yes, great! The town would provide food and shelter in exchange for protection for the local Turkish officials and bandits. If they said no, well, they'd be considered fair game for a raid. Uh, that is, if the cell was based on Ottoman territory. The ones based out of Bulgaria had a tendency to roll in, murder a few Turkish officials, and then roll out and leave the villagers on their own when the authorities showed up. The Turks maintained a superior firepower and could suppress these petty bands regardless where they were based out of. We're talking about a lot of hill and valley towns here. They couldn't be everywhere at once. So Ottoman rule became a lot more theoretical as time went on. The loose nature of these cells backfired, though, in a big way in November 1897. A gang of 15 crossed from Bulgaria, entered the village of Venista, and murdered the local Turkish notable and his Slavic manservant. They hightailed it back over the border, but the manservant they killed had been a member of the local VMRO himself. His wife assumed it was his local cell that betrayed him, and she reported the group to the Turks in retaliation. The Ottomans did a regional sweep, and the results disturbed them greatly. They uncovered caches of thousands of guns and rounded up hundreds of VMRO agents. Suddenly, the scale of the whole operation was out in the open, and the organization responded by ramping up its terror efforts against the authorities. For years moving forward, Macedonia would slide into anarchy as skirmishes between guerrillas and Turkish troops became the norm. Now, this escalation did not sit well with the VMRO faction based in Bulgaria, especially since much of the Bulgarian leadership had thrown in with the group. They watched across the border as the Ottoman-based cells started acting more and more brazenly and with increased independence. So, they decided not to be outdone by the Turkish-based side of the operation, and in September 1902, declared a general uprising and started seizing villages adjacent to the border. The Turks suffered 500 fatalities before driving them back across that border, and even though the groups based in Macedonia had declined to take part in that little uprising, for the very reason of what was about to happen, 
The Turks, understandably, didn't make much of a distinction between the two. They launched a full-blown military campaign and knocked out the VMRO leadership within their territory, which then meant all those various cells lost their leadership and all started acting more independently. The Bulgarian faction stepped in and provided more weapons and recruits, but the anarchy deepened again, and this time even the local Slavic population wasn't spared the worst of the violence and extortions. The worst incident was in Salonika, where the gas lighting in the city was sabotaged one evening, and the foreign quarter of the city was subjected to barrages of homemade bombs, climaxing with a local French-controlled bank being blown up with dynamite. Foreigners living there had been enjoying a pleasant evening out on the town when Molotov cocktails were hurled at them. The reasoning in attacking foreigners was to deliberately provoke the great powers into getting involved in further destabilizing the situation, which uh, was quite ambitious and maybe not entirely thought through. Fortunately for the Ottomans, those attempts didn't work, though it did provoke the local Muslim population to do a little retaliatory banditry of their own against their Christian neighbors. The violence in Macedonia peaked with the Alinden Uprising. Breaking out from western Macedonia to the coast of the Black Sea, numerous guerrilla units organized and started seizing villages. The scale of the uprising proved to be its undoing, though, and the Ottoman army picked off the centers of resistance one by one. These troops were accompanied by irregulars who carried out a campaign of looting and burning villages that had gotten in their way. From August to November 1903, the VRMO was ground down and finally broken. But not before much of the region was put to the torch and created tens of thousands of refugees. The Bulgarians were given pause for the moment as the VRMO was totally exhausted. But for the Turks, the situation had grown intolerable. The local army units were at their wits' end with the government in Istanbul, and a revolution by a faction known as the Young Turks, which is where the term comes from, launched a coup and took control of the government in 1908. This destabilization set the stage for the First Balkan War four years later. And Bulgaria was not unprepared for the coming conflict. After huge financial investment, which caused a state bankruptcy in 1902, and also benefiting from a third of the national budget, the army was reasonably modernized with artillery and machine guns. It was ready to hit the trenches. I already covered the Balkan Wars in the Yugoslav episode, so just a quick recap of its origins. In 1909, Albanian rebels tried to break away from the Turkish Empire. The Turks got into a protracted counterinsurgency and failed to put it down. It got so bad that by 1912, a league of small Balkan states, including Bulgaria, decided that then was the time to gang up on the Ottomans. The Turks were caught with their troops out of position and faced invasion from three directions. Bulgaria's role was pushing southeast towards Istanbul. This front was a bit smaller and less dramatic than the ones the Serbs and Greeks enjoyed, as Bulgaria was expected to storm the fortresses that protected the Ottoman capital. Initially, things went really well, and the Ottomans lost their forward defenses. However, just 20 miles from the great city, the Turks regrouped and stalemated the Bulgarians. The focus of this sector was the siege of the city of Adrianople, modern-day Adirna. It had managed to hold out against the initial advance, and for five months was a constant thorn in the side of the, of the Bulgarians, tying up troops and complicating logistics to the other soldiers moving on Istanbul. Even the arrival of Serb troops in November 1912 couldn't speed the siege along, and it was only in May 1913 that the city fell. Tens of thousands had died during the siege, but thankfully its fall presaged the end of the war. But the end turned out not entirely to Bulgaria's advantage. Its armies had been bled attacking the strongest Ottoman positions, 
and it had secured land only up to its modern southern borders and a strip of land connecting to the Aegean. They had agreed to split northern Macedonia with Serbia, but the Serbs had been in charge of occupying the region and decided that possession was nine-tenths the law and declined to hand over the Bulgarians' half. The Bulgarian army tried to launch a surprise attack against the Serbs, but that didn't accomplish anything other than provoking all their neighbors to dogpile them in the Second Balkan War. The conflict lasted a month, and the troops, having just survived the brutal first one, refused to fight another. Bulgaria lost out of Macedonia as it was split between Serbia and Greece, which was a bitter blow given how the region had so dominated their politics for almost two decades before the war. Then they also lost the South Dobrogea region to Romania, who hadn't passed the opportunity to kick a neighbor while they were down. That region is merely a strip of land on the Bulgarian-Romanian border, but it was absurdly good farmland. It was only 8% of the country's arable soil, but produced 20% of its food. To call the war a disaster was an understatement. Which means it shouldn't be surprising that Bulgaria entered into World War I with the sole objective of wrecking Serbia. They had initially stayed out, but Ferdinand, who had upgraded his title to Tsar by this time, was single-minded in wishing his neighbor be destroyed, and the central powers were already trying to do that. The Entente defeat at Gallipoli meant that there wouldn't be a Western army on their doorstep, so in October 1915, they took the plunge and invaded their neighbor. At first, the war went really well. Serbia was crushed, and Macedonia was taken by the Bulgarians. Big problem, though. The war didn't end. In fact, Bulgaria was faced with a returning Entente army landing in the Greek city of Salonika. Greece was neutral, but that didn't really matter a whole lot to the Entente, who didn't want to concede the Balkans to their enemies. With the Serb army evacuated through Albania and reorganized in the region, the Bulgarians now faced a multinational army running from the Adriatic coast to just east of Salonika. Both sides dug in, and while the Entente were unable to break through the mountain passes northwards, the following years would not be pleasant ones for the Bulgarians. First of all, the nation was still exhausted from the Balkan Wars. Second, the country mobilized an 800,000-man army, which was enormous for a country their size and drained the homeland of its manpower. Now, the crops were going to be getting less attention come harvest time. Third, the partnership with Germany was not well received. The Germans knew that Bulgaria was the little guy in the central powers and proceeded to take over their economy, directing resources to benefit Germany first, Bulgaria second. German soldiers passing through the country even bought up all the food they could afford, desiring to send it back to their own starving families back home. Even the successful campaign against Romania in 1916, which saw the southern Dobrogea region fall back into their hands, did little to salvage the situation. Hunger began to stalk the nation, and conditions in the army got worse. Supplies were hard to come by, and going into 1918, the troops were reduced to the rags of their former uniforms. The army was not so much beaten in the field as it was starved out. In September 1918, the army fell apart and began retreating back north. The war was lost, and now Bulgaria had to face the peace to come. Ferdinand was in a state of panic back in Sofia. The army, whose rank and file were in an extremely bad mood, were now streaming back home out of control, and he had no idea what they were going to do. In three wars over six years, one in five men between 20 and 50 years old had died, and the nation had nothing to show for it. There was a very real chance the army would just tear down the whole state and install a leader of their choosing. 
He performed a political Hail Mary and released from prison a politician named Alexander Stumbeliski, who was the leader of the Bulgarian Agrarian National Union, or the BANU for short. Stamboliski was a populist who advocated for the working peasants of the country and was both an enemy of Ferdinand and an opponent of the war, which was what landed him in prison. Now to save his skin, Ferdinand asked him to be prime minister. In exchange for political power, Stamboliski agreed to help the Tsar get out of his little jam. He traveled to the small town of Radomir, less than 30 miles outside of Sofia, where 15,000 of those very irate soldiers were assembling to march on the capital. He went to calm the troops down and announce he had assumed national leadership, but things took a turn immediately when it was announced, on his behalf, that he had declared the Tsar deposed and the nation to be a republic. He didn't actually make that announcement. He was there merely to try to talk the troops into demobilizing. Now he had to ring up his BANU subordinates in Sofia to get them to assure the Tsar that their deal was still on. Understandably, the Tsar didn't go for that and thought that Stambuliski had backstabbed him. The troops resumed their march on Sofia and on September 30, 1918, had reached the capital. However, loyalist troops backed by some of the remaining Germans in the area checked the mutineers and defeated the rebellion. Rebels dispersed, and Stambuliski went into hiding. Don't worry, he'll be back very quickly. Ferdinand, though, was done. He abdicated on October 3rd, and his son rose to the throne as Boris III. The rebellion had been ineffectual, and it did further damage by driving a wedge between the BANU and the communists. The communists had been offered an alliance during the mutineers' march on Sofia, but the Bulgarian communists didn't care to fall in line with a party dedicated to landholders. Instead, they preferred to appeal to the urban proletariat, which didn't really exist in Bulgaria. The nation was the least developed, aside from Albania, of a very undeveloped region. I'm not sure who the Communist Party thought they were going to appeal to, but it left them terribly isolated. Bulgaria held its breath under a caretaker government as it waited for judgment to come from Paris. The news wasn't great, and it was humiliating, but my take is that it could have been worse. They lost their outlet to the Aegean Sea in the form of a strip of land around the city of Alexandropoli, as well as fragments of land on the Serbian border, which look pointlessly small on a map, but served as important mountain barriers. Now, the new Yugoslavia was protected from attack, while Bulgaria was made more vulnerable. This left the country in mourning, as its territorial dreams were now well and truly dead, barring some massive collapse of the new order they found themselves in. By August 1919, the nation was forced to move forward, begrudgingly and angrily. In that month, there were the first post-war elections, and the results signaled a hard shift to the anti-establishment left. Stamboliski came out of hiding and was allowed to stand along with the BANU, which netted 28% of the vote, the Communists 18, and the Socialists 13. Together, they formed a government intent on actually serving the people of the country. Except Stamboliski really didn't want to share power. He came from the peasants, from the farms. That's who he wanted to hold up over the snooty city folk. He formed a group called the Orange Guard, and in one of his first acts, sent them to break up a communist-backed mining strike. Not a great start, and it wasn't long before the government broke apart, and a new election was held in March 1920. This time, the peasants got their pro-them message loud and clear and flocked to his banner. Well, that, and he used his control of government to disqualify many of his adversaries, so that while only gaining 38% of the parliament, 
the BANU had a majority of seats that were actually filled. Now, Stambuliski was in complete control of the country. Naturally, he started going after his enemies and repressing political opposition. With the basis of his power being the peasantry, which composed over four-fifths of the country, his position seemed solid. He did have a fatal flaw, though, and that was he and his fellows in the BANU could never leave well enough alone. He declared a dictatorship of the proletariat, which sounds pleasant enough, but in reality he was ruling by decree. He instituted measures like in December 1919, when he established a state monopoly over grain. Yep, the state became the entire market for grain, the primary product of the country. He also made state labor compulsory in June 1920. It was basically military conscription, except you worked on infrastructure projects for a few months, and also women were included in the program. Very progressive. In May 1921, he implemented land reform and redistributed land from the larger farms to less well-off families. He also launched social campaigns against urban citizens. He banned those with a higher education from joining the BANU. He restricted the activity of lawyers, and even the state's grain monopoly was set up mostly to put the middlemen brokers out of a job. And the Orange Guard, his paramilitary group, was open only to the lower class and farmers. So the old officer corps couldn't even land a militia gig like their counterparts in Germany or Italy could. In fact, the Orange Guard was ultimately the source of Stambuliski's downfall. They figured themselves the new power in Bulgaria and went around looking for fights with not just the regular army, but the VMRO as well. Now, the VMRO was a shadow of what it had been in the aughts, but they were still around and had experience in paramilitary violence. And there were still hundreds of thousands of Macedonian refugees who were none too pleased that Stambuliski had given up their struggle and had made public comments asking the Yugoslavs to take them back and get them out of his hair. This ill will culminated in a coup on June 9, 1923, and the army and VMRO easily crushed the barely armed Orange Guard in Sofia. Stambuliski was out of town at the time and momentarily tried to organize a response, but the VMRO caught up with them and chopped his head off. They shifted back to their bosses in Sofia in a tin can. A new government under a man named Alexander Sankov took over. Soon afterwards, it was the communists' turn to badly miscalculate. They had hated Stambuliski since he had broken up their miners' strike back in 1920. So they sat out the coup and let the BANU get crushed. This inaction did not go unnoticed by the larger party back in Moscow. Grigory Zinoviev, leader of the Comintern, got really, really mad at the Bulgarian branch and demanded they take some action. They staged a rising in Sofia in September 1923, but it was stunning in its pointlessness. There was no real plan, not enough support among the city's population, and with Stambuliski's death, there wasn't anyone popular enough around to rally the masses in the countryside. It failed immediately. Sankov's response was immediate and brutal. The next couple of years, he would spearhead a white terror against the left in Bulgaria, killing around 10,000 people. Entire villages were burned to the ground, their populaces terrorized, their possessions looted as enemies of the state were hunted down. Due to economic problems, Zankov was eventually forced from office in 1926. And while the terror was wound down, the wounds the country suffered from were far from healed. Both the military and government were factionalized, the people were dislocated after their representative parties were suppressed, there were still refugees from all the wars, and the VMRO was still in operation now targeting Yugoslavia and Macedonia. It was a hopeless mess, and the country largely lacked direction for the duration of the 20s. Tsar Boris was far less assertive than his father, 
who constantly harangued his son with unwanted advice from his German exile. Boris, probably seeing no way out of his circumstances, largely kept to himself and did not seek the same leadership role as his counterparts elsewhere. Economically, the country was also doing poorly. I have mentioned before that the 1920s were a time of depression for grain prices, as markets outside of Europe greatly expanded their production in response to the demands caused by World War I. With the return of Europe to producing foodstuffs normally again, there was a glut of produce on the markets which drove down prices. For a nation that was 80% farmer, that meant even when production got back to quasi-normal, they were earning a whole lot less. And there weren't expansion opportunities for farms in Bulgaria. It's a mountainous country, there's kind of a hard limit to how much you could produce. Industry was one outlet, and during the 20s it expanded by an impressive-sounding 80%. But when you consider it barely had any industry to begin with, an 80% increase of not a lot wasn't sufficient to offset the losses in agriculture. It is a sad state for me to leave Bulgaria in. Their ambitions were firmly thwarted, its people impoverished, and its political system incapable of fixing the nation's constant problems. They won't be a linchpin moving forward, and while they would become a partner of Nazi Germany, the damage they suffered in these years goes a long way to explaining why they were the most unassertive of the European axis. Simply put, they had nothing left in the tank. Still, when called upon by Hitler to join his alliance, they did so, if only to try one last time to get back at their neighbors for all the misery they had endured during these years. Which isn't to say their whole ordeal is over, and while I'll touch on them in the 30s, it'll kind of be more of the same. In the meantime, we have one last Central European nation to go, and next week, we'll be concluding in sun-kissed Greece. Tune in then, and as always, Thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.